Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Anyway, welcome to Word in Your Ear. One spot. Let me let me tell you about the astonishing power of word in your ear. I think after the last one, Mark and I were talking about who we'd like to invite along, and I'd say, and it just struck me it was forty years since the release of one of my favourite records ever, Squeezing Out Sparks. And so I thought, I wonder, I wonder if you can get hold of the author of that record. You know, through his representatives on Earth, you know, which, you know, succession of PRs and kind people, of flunkies yes, yeah. flunkies. and air Lackies. warmers will I have to go through. Yeah. No, I just, somebody gave me his email. I just emailed him and they said, would you like to come to work, to word in your ear? And he said, yes, fine. So here he is, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Graham Parker. Appreciate it. And am I, am I allowed to say that you confessed, confessed to me that you came here using your freedom pass this evening? Yeah. <laughs> There's and no yeah. shame about that, Graham, anything, either. Anything to do with the Northern Line is a bitch, you know. That. Right, right, it's right. Just, it sucked, but I, I, God forbid I'm going to pay for a cab. A cab and I got a Quite right. Not going to happen. No, Not no. going to happen. I'll walk 20 miles in the rain and dark rather than get a cab. <laughs> I got a freedom pass. Even if the tubes are closed, I don't, you know. Nothing wrong with a freedom pass no, at no, all. No, no, no shame there. We're, it's we're, the only <laughs> thing they've ever given us, isn't it, really, the government? Yeah. I mean, thank you. And then the longer we have to use it, the better. So, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's traditional on uh, Word in Your Ear interviews that we, we often start by asking people what they remember about the kind of music reproduction machinery that was in their house when they were growing up. Well, you know, what kind, were there record players or radios or radiograms or whatever? What do you remember about that? Uh, I do remember we had a giant piece of furniture. 
on a massive, what, what was it called? The wireless set, wasn't it? Oh, well, it was, was it a radiogram? Or was Probably that, a radiogram. We're talking the 50s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A ra yeah well, it was a big thing. Yeah, I think you, put your, like, you put your drinks in it as well. I think. Oh, oh well, perfect. I mean, it was quite... And it was the sound was probably fantastic, and uh, and I was hearing Bing Crosby, Perry Como, um, and and the English novelty, you know, the Laughing Policeman, and whatever. Nothing wrong with those. And things. Doris Day and uh, uh, Danny Kay, that beautiful song Inchworm, a lot of that stuff. You know, I appreciated it to a certain extent right then. So your parents were into music. Well, they. they you know, my mum, she could actually sing, but she never sang. But, you know, around the house, I thought, she's got a nice voice. My dad couldn't tap his feet in time. It, you know, he was, like, all over the place. <laughs> but he did like it, I think. Right. He right. liked something about it. I don't know what. And he was thrilled when I got a career. He, he, he drove along in a hospital bus driving nurses back and forth, singing Silly Thing from Howling Wind all the time. <laughs> and also he used to sing uh, Love Me Do, the Beatles. He'd sing, if there's anything that you want, if there's anything dinky-doo, that's how he'd sing. It's a wonder, you know, I should have been a comedy writer after, after that. <laughs> so how did you get into music? Can you remember the first records you bought? Well, um, I, was, uh, my, I was in the army area in Surrey, the, you know, near Aldershot, home of the British Army, a village called Deep Cut. Yeah, it's where I come from. Yeah, yeah. I know. And you're well. from Fleet, yeah, yeah. just up the road, yeah. yeah. And um, my mum used to work sometimes, part-time, for the officers' mess, right, Where they, and they, she'd serve tea. And they were always travelling, you know, they were always in different countries, Germany or wherever, and some of them bought records, and, you know, they'd bring them back and then say, oh, I've got to go somewhere a long way away. And my mum would say, oh, my, book, my son likes music, so I must have expressed some interest very young. And I'd get... Uh, the, so they'd give her records, and I had my, finally had my first record player, and uh, I had, like, Little Richard singles and, right. and stuff like that. And uh, there was a James Brown album called Mashed Potatoes USA. <laughs> there was a Carl Denver album, and there was these Little Richard things. And, you know, the Beatles and the Stones, of course, came along. I was actually 11 when I heard Love Me Do. I figured that out the other day. Um, so uh, then you realise Paul McCartney does, you know, Little Richard. And, uh, they, you know, the Rolling Stones, What's, who's this guy, C. Berry, Chuck Berry? Oh, OK, that's the guy you occasionally hear on Caroline or Radio Caroline. So all these sort of things thread together. There's a lot of uh, common, you know, threads in, in the music from what I would get from these army officers via my mum. Did you have older brothers and sisters? No, no, it was just me. It was just great. You. Yes, wouldn't want it any other way. <laughs> I, I had time to get this shit together. You know, sorry, I... You know, I had, you know, it was. I had a, I had a head all about myself, and right. I was writing. So the first song I wrote, I was about twelve or thirteen. What was, what was it? it called? Can you remember? It was awful. Yeah, it was no. It was well. This is the Beatles. I was probably about twelve, so it was called "Won't You Come Back." And he went, uh, "Yeah, well, you went away, and I was so sorrowful. Won't you come back?" Ooh. <laughs> Won't you come back? And then I wrote another song that was a complete steal of Hoochie Coochie Man because I thought no one would have heard it, but somebody had. They said, you've stolen that. That's, that's Hoochie Coochie Man. Oh, I never heard it. No, sorry. So, yeah, I was stealing from an early age. <laughs> so were you involved in bands at school? No. No, we, I had a dress-up band. That's what I call it now. We... we 
we would dress up like we're the, we were the, the Deep Cut Three, and then we added a member and became the Black Down Rockers because it was Deep Cut and Black Down was the same sort of army barracks. And uh, we wore black polo necks. There's a photograph somewhere. I've got it in New York, actually. Uh, we wore black, black polo necks and the Beatle haircuts. And somehow, for a 12 or 13-year-old kid, I got older winkle pickers. Pretty amazing. And uh, the problem was we, we didn't know that you had to actually learn to play. We thought you just could look like that and everything would be cool. So well, for a lot of people, that worked. Yeah, worked. well, yeah. No, that, that's why I didn't get a record deal until I was 24, <laughs> because I spent a lot of time not learning how to play, not bothering. I was, a, you, I was a lazy git, really. There was a group called, was it Pegasus you were in? Oh, uh, OK, that's that, way down the line. Yeah, oh, that's so, a bit later on. Well, I'll come to that in a moment. No, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you had get, your, that, so I was about 21 now. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you had years, what, miming in front of a dressing, yes. say, a dressing table mirror kind of thing? Yeah, but I Tennis learned, racket? Or what was your no, favourite? No, I, I, I had a guitar pretty quick. They were oh, hand-me-downs in those days. Somebody gave me a guitar, no brand, sort of name, whatever it was. But where, you had to learn the theme of the third man. Down, 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 right. down, yeah, down. Yeah, so, yeah. I was, you know, I got pretty adept at that and uh, tried a bit of shadow stuff. Uh, and then the Stones and the Beatles, you know, when they came along, it was like, what is Keith doing? Down, 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 down. What is that? So you started having a, having a go at that. But then I would stop. I'd think, oh, I know, and I, you know, why bother? But I had a few different bands. One was called The Way Out, and I was about 15, and we were like R&B band. Again, we didn't learn how to play properly. We just didn't... We didn't bother with that. We just sort of got together. It was a bit of a laugh. What sort of stuff were you playing? What, what, what numbers? What would we have been, Oh, we had been doing stuff like Long Talk Shorty and, yeah. and, and things right, like yeah, that. Yeah. That kind of art, dum, 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 dum. We could do that first bit. The next bit was a bit of a mystery, the next chord. <laughs> and, and, you know, the resolving chord, uh, that, was, that was a mystery. So we just, <laughs> yeah. we just sort of bluff it with two chords. We played in, in garages, but, you know, I mean, practised in somebody's garage, basically. So you were mainly a fan, really, at that point. Yeah, I mean, I just went through so many different types of music uh, as a listener, as a fan, and just didn't bother to learn enough until I... I guess I was about 18 when I left home and went to Guernsey. I was just about 18. For some reason, I thought that's what you do. You know, my parents were great, home life was fine, everything was good, but I thought you're supposed to do that. I think I might have already read Jack Kerouac by then. (laughs) which will destroy your and mind. And they went to Guernsey. <laughs> and I went to Guernsey. Well, I couldn't go and ra- work on the railroads no, in San no, Francisco. No, you know, no, that no was, freight trains that out was there. out of the question, no. so I went to Guernsey on the ferry. Well, and you got a job emptying, you were saying earlier, emptying pinball machines, was it? Yeah, well, yeah. The, th- the major job I got was working in a bakery, which was great because you do afternoon shifts into the evening. And then I could get back and hang out with the pals I'd met there and listen to music. And um, I also got the job going around... At collecting money from pinball machines for a bit. Um, and I did some ditch digging and gardening work, as landscaping and stuff like that. So, yeah. <laughs> and worked, you say you worked in a rubber glove factory. Oh, that was a bit later on, yeah. Later on. Yeah, I, I, that was... Uh, when was that? Well, after the Guernsey bit, that's when I went to Morocco. I came back to the UK and worked in a f- factories. Before the, the rubber glove factory, I worked in a, a factory making, um, uh, working presses. You know, uh, it was called fine blanking presses. You put this machinery into the press. You know, uh, the sheets of metal, sometimes 18 inch wide and about 20 foot long. And you'd put them in and you'd make sure the press stamped out a part. 
you know, for, for whatever. There was one for rank Wharfdale speakers, a small one. And the press I was working on at one point, the biggest one, the heaviest gear, this guy was working on it just before me. And one day he, he sort of stepped back and went, finger! And he walked through the factory, and I was on another machine. It was like, like this. There was blood pouring everywhere. So that machine, I was on, I, had, I was put on that machine next. He'd just lost the top of his finger. So, you know, and, I'll, I'll take over. It's no, here's, here's the amazing thing. About a week or two later, I was working at, and you have these little rods of metal, you poke out iron filings and scraps as the thing's pressing. Extremely dangerous. And suddenly there's this weird purple thing. I kid you not, it was a week or two later. Oh, and, no, And no. I sort of stopped the press and pulled it out, and, and it was a little purple top of a finger. Oh! So the guy, he, he was back by now. It must have been two weeks later. It was, it was a while, I know that. And he was back with his hand. I said, uh, do you think they can reattach this, mate? You get, <laughs> yeah. you're, it's worth a go, looking for that. <laughs> and we all had a good laugh, you know. <laughs> what did they do, pop it in his pocket? Take it home. I don't know what he did with it. I just gave it to him and then walked, you know, it's like, it's up to him. That's a private thing. You know, he can stick it where he wants. I mean, so were you, were you in those days taking pretty much all your spare money and spending it on records? Uh, well, you know, nobody had a lot of money at any point in time to buy a lot of records. I suppose if you were dedicated, that's what you would do. But usually I'd have one record. You know, I'd have, you know, a dozen, maybe a dozen that I was really into. What were they? Less than that. Well... It's hard to, you know, the, these periods of time are getting a bit fuzzy for me here. Uh, when I was in Guernsey, I went to Guernsey and, uh, and I was uh, still obsessed with um, Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac and Chicken Shack. Right. I was into that. I didn't understand psychedelic music. Or, you know, I didn't... The Pink so you Floyd. didn't go down that route at all? No, I did as soon as I got to Jersey, Guernsey. Right. Because right. people gave me things to take. Oh, I see. <laughs> and I don't, know what, I don't know what people put in your drinks, you know. You never know. And then I understood Pink Floyd. Before that, it was a mystery to me. It was just like rubbish. You know, so what, before that, it was Fleetwood Mac. It was 4-4 it was, it was four, beat stuff. It was, was it, did, did you ever wear a rugby shirt like members of Fleetwood oh, Mac? Oh, no, I didn't. No, I wore the, the, the granddad shirt with the three buttons. Oh, button. right. Oh, yeah. Usually yeah, yeah, a plain yeah, yeah. one. Yeah, the, shirt, the white yes. one straight from the old man shop, you know. Right, yeah. right. Well, who else? Fleetwood Mac? You like them? Yeah, well, I, I went through, you know, the, 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 the Beatles, the Stones, the soul music phase when I was 14 or 15, the Scar and all that stuff. Um, and then uh, the, 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 the British blues boom, you know, which I thought was fantastic, and I could go and see those bands anywhere around the home counties. Yeah, they yeah. were always on. John Fleet Mayle? John Mayle, yeah. oh, all, all of that. Alexis Corner, yeah. Duster Bennett, incredible one-man band guy. It was brilliant. And... Um, but then it was the more the, the psychedelic sort of aspect of things when I was in Guernsey. You know, I mean, the long hair, the full freak flag flying and all this stuff. And for some weird reason, you had to read Lord of the Rings. I don't know what that had to do with it, but suddenly... It was like, compulsory. It, was, it seemed to be yeah. for the hippies, yeah. Did you read Lord of the Rings? I did, oh, yeah. All the way? All the way and The Hobbit before it, yes, yeah. I did. I thought it was my duty as a freak. I don't, yeah. You know, what it had to do with that, I don't really know. But anyway... Uh, then then I, I, I made this money and then went to Morocco because I wanted to get so stoned. So that was kind of hippie trail. Yeah, I yeah. wanted to get stoned with really old guys in cafe, cafes, which I did. It was fun. So and you went uh, on your own to Morocco? I went on my own and travelled. You soon meet up with people. There were lots of the freaks on the road, you know, so we, me and a few people travelled around for a bit sometimes. Uh, went, went all over there. Rabat, Essaouira, Marrakesh, Casablanca... 
um, a lot of interesting places. I was there for a long while, and then I, I was running out of money, and people said, go to Gibraltar. So I went to Gibraltar and got a job instantly on the docks and crashed in a place where there were like 20 bunks and some guy was charging you a couple of bob, you know, if that. Did, and did uh, met a band and joined them. You yes. don't look like a docker, Graham. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't you know, very. It wasn't heavy. Right. It was. It was bird's eye frozen foods. Uh, yeah. uh, but you know, so yeah, it was a sack, and you'd go into a walk-in freezer, the kind of place you could die. You know, right. so if they, yeah, they so shut the door and don't yes, know you're there. You're yes. There. Did you get a song out of any of this? Well, I was writing by then. Because you were writing songs then, It's when I got to Guernsey that I picked up an acoustic guitar because as well as the more trippy stuff, there was James Taylor, 1971, Sweet Baby James. There was, you know, obviously Joni Mitchell. So I thought, well, that at least you don't need a band for. So maybe, and I liked it. So I I got an acoustic guitar in Guernsey and I was starting to finger pick. Immediately I started writing as if it was normal, as if it was natural. So, you know, whatever I had when I was younger was put on hold for a bit. And this whole scene there started kicking me off. Incredible string band. I was really... I love them, you know, really? stuff like Again, that. Again, no yeah. shame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. You can say that in here. Yes, you yeah, can say yeah, what yeah. you like. It's good. It's, we're, <laughs> in a, we're at home, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. 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 So and did yeah. you start seeing yourself as a professional musician? Well, I, I wasn't sure. I mean, really, I went off to, uh, to, to Morocco and, amazingly... I joined this band that were called Pegasus, and then they changed their name to Narcissus. <coughs> and uh, we do, as we said, like 12-minute versions of Phoenix by Wishbone oh, Ash. Wishbone Ash. This is it where we were talking about Wishbone Ash. Yeah. You bonded, in. though. You can both play Phoenix. Can bond, I was in a band that played Phoenix by Wishbone Ash. Did you really? Yeah. 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 Well, it's so easy. It's just like an E minor, so you can it do is. all kinds of leader. You do E minor, C, G, D or something. That's it. And you can waffle. And so we played Hey Joe, it was the same chords as well. Yeah. E minor, Hey Joe C. So you could go, Yeah, the big chorus, <laughs> Phoenix Rise, raise your head to the sky. Raise your head, yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah. Punch the air, that's <laughs> and, and, and we played in a bar and there was nobody there ever, apart from the barman who loved us. Well, there wouldn't be if you played a 12-minute no. version of Phoenix. <laughs> no, 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 that was the period for it. it was okay. That's shorter than the record. <laughs> yes, the actual record was 15 minutes, wasn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, so yeah, it was uh, it was all it was good fun really with these freaks. And then we took the band to Morocco. We took the band. I mean, a band from Gibraltar to Morocco. You took Fantastic. Wishbone Ash to Morocco. No, not Wishbone. No, well, no, but I mean, the, this band. You thought the people of Morocco no, deserved to hear? Yeah. They, we took the Argus. music. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and at that time, I think uh, Sex Machine by um, uh, what's his name? James Brown. James Brown was happening, or something like that. So it was all funk. Right. So we were playing this stoner oh, so you'd stuff. Moved. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we played one, gi- one or two gigs in a in a cavern. There were just two people that came both nights, and they they danced in the most peculiar way. It was un- <laughs> it was disturbing. I mean, it was like oh, uh, all over each other. This couple and touching each other. They're like this is really disturbing. But that's uh, that was our audience. And then we got into a fight with the owner because he kept our passports and wouldn't give them back. And suddenly he brought all these kids out. With, with chairs swinging at us. So as us hippies, we, we're supposed to defend ourselves. You know, we don't do that. Right. But so we did. You... It's amazing how nasty you get. Yeah, absolutely. Very quickly. 
So what year are we talking about here? 73 or something? 71, 72 maximum. 70, 71. Right, right, right. I'd, I'd never made notes of the actual years, yeah, but, yeah. you know, I pieced things together as time has gone on. So how did you get back to the UK? Well, uh, I, also in Gibraltar, I was on television. Oh, really? I'd oh. love to see that, but I'm sure it's... in Doing the what? Me and the acoustic guitar, because in Gibraltar, as you can imagine, not much going on, and somebody heard singer-songwriter on the island. Yes. So I said, yeah, I write a lot of songs. So they Man had, has guitar. Yeah, See had a guitar. And I could finger-pick and I played a couple <laughs> of songs. And it was probably a BBC station, but good luck finding that. So that somewhere funny. out there, it's possibly on YouTube. Have you ever seen actually? it? No, I've never seen it. If that's on YouTube, I'd know about it. Right. Yeah. Can you remember um, the song you did? No, no, it would have been songs that I dumped by the time oh. I got to the age of 23 and, and com- come out of the trying to write uh, rock operas, you know, songs that changed pace and, and tempo three or four times. Oh, lovely. Yes, I was, I was writing all those. Guys. Still in yeah. the wishbone ash mode. Then. Yes, I was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was even, I was more far out shape. than that. More Fast far out. bit here. Yeah. yeah. But no, I... I, I, I yeah, that what wasn't, made you change, yeah. change course? Because I mean, you were very keen on Springsteen. I, I read lots of things to be talking about Springsteen. No, no, I'd never... I'd, nobody had heard of Springsteen as far as I knew. I mean, I was in... Morocco, probably when his first two albums came out, I was somewhere else and didn't know anything about them. The only thing I knew was that about 1974, I've seen the future of rock and all that, his manager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I was around a friend's one night and I'd already written Back to School Days, and this is about 74. I'd, I had those songs were, you know, burning up. I was, I was ready to go. And he puts this record on and I went, what is this? He said, it's this Bruce Springsteen, Born to Run album. I th- it was mind-blowing. What a record. But, you know, people say, oh, you were influenced, but no, I was Van Morrison, yes, hello, uh, Dylan and mm-hmm. Stones and lots and lots of other people, but not Bruce. And, and if you compare Howling Wind to Born to Run, I mean, you're kidding me. Where's the similarities? Okay, it's a guy with a band, you know, and he's passionate or intense or whatever. But musically, no, I, wouldn't, I didn't pick up anything because it was I'd already sort of forged some of those Howling yeah. Wind albums yeah. by then. They don't come out of nowhere a week before you do an album. You know, yeah. it's a, it really was like my whole life building up to suddenly I'd written Back to School Days. And it was Goodbye Psychedelia and all that. And it was about soul music. It was about R&B. It was about every kind of root style I was suddenly really into. Sort of things you liked when you listened to Mersey Beat or those beat groups, yeah, yeah. really. It was they were doing the same kind of thing. Um, so then you yeah. came back to London and you saw, I think you saw the, uh, the North Rhythm, Rhythm Tour. Tour. Was that right? Well, yes, I was back in, uh, actually I went back to Deep Cut and I thought, I had this rash idea that I would pretty much stay there and, and write, work in factories, you know, and, and just bide my time doing jobs I didn't care about until I became a real songwriter. And then I'd get a record deal. That was my rash idea. Although I did have a little spell in Chichester, living there where I worked at the proverbial... Uh, rubber glove oh, factory. factory. It's just a rubber glove factory, yeah. <laughs> fabulous, fabulous job, great people. Idiots, really, know all of them. Anyway, but, yeah, so I... And then by 70... About 74, that was, wasn't it? Something like that, 74, yeah, 75. 75 yeah. I'd, I'd read about this Dr Feelgood group and I'd probably heard a song on the, the radio because I didn't know Brinsley Schwartz music or, or Ducks Deluxe or any of those kind of bands, but I'd heard of this Dr Feelgood. And... Uh, I went to see it, 
because uh, there was these other bands, and I started reading in the back of the Melody Maker about Kokomo, Chili, Chili Willie. And I went to see that show at Guildford Civic Hall. And it was, uh, what was it called? The Naughty Rhythms Tour, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And when I saw Dr. Field, by then I'd had my hair short and I was wearing suit jackets and tr straight trousers. And I was deciding, it, whatever you do, it's got to be the opposite to the last thing that happened, which was peacefully, you know, 12-minute versions of Wishbone Ash songs. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, was, it had to be the opposite. That was the only way it could go for me. And I saw, saw that group and I realised they're doing R&B, basically. They, weren't, they didn't have original new songs, and that's what I was doing, but it was like the, the attitude of the group. It was like that, I'm on the right track. I saw them and I thought, I am on the right track. Right. This is, this is where it's going to go. It's going to be aggression. It's going to be in your face, and it's going to be three-and-a-half-minute songs, no, no nasal game, no, no tuning up. Shake, the, shake people up. Grab them by the scruff of the neck. Shake them up. So... Dr. Philwood were a very good sign and very uh, inspirational in that, you know. And yeah. how did you make the leap to, to forming a band then? How did, how did you get to, to, to the next stage? Um, well, that was the rumour. That was, that was my only first band of any... But that was through... So was an three, added melody maker? Through, or yeah. Through, yeah. Is this through Dave Robinson? How do you come to meet Dave Robinson? Well, I, at first I put an ad in the Melody Maker because I didn't know... I was out in the sticks there, out in the suburbs. You know, I, I, I didn't know how do you meet people in London. I mean, I was going up all the time, squatting with freaks, you know, and staying there, but none of them knew what pub rock was. None of them knew what roots music was. They just about could handle Dylan, you know. They were still back there, yeah, yeah. and I wasn't. Um, so I didn't know anything about that. And I put an ad in the Melody Maker, the usual, you know, into Dylan, Van Morrison, Stones... You know, just sing a songwriter once banned. And I got all these replies and went to see all these people who are quite awful, you can imagine, out in the suburbs. But finally, up in London, there was Noel Brown, who, uh, who was a uh, lap steel and telecaster player, in, you know, absolutely rooted in roots rock, as we might call it now. And uh, there was Paul Bassman Riley, who was in Chilly Willie. So I'd met someone who was actually in a band yes. who I'd seen. And it was like, whoa. So, so you were, what, 24, 25 at this yeah, point? Yeah, it was about 20, 24. Before 24. you'd met anybody yeah. who was really a, a pro. Yes, basically, yes. I was about 24. It's quite late, isn't it? Really? It That's is, yeah. But my life was so late, interesting. Yeah. I wasn't exactly, like, itching until I wrote those songs, until Soul Shoes came out. I thought, I've got to do something. I've got to do something now. It's getting late, as you say so you were kind of surprised by the quality of what you'd done? Well, I'd worked hard enough. I'd written a lot of songs and kept dumping them. There were some that were, were pretty good that, uh, you know, that, that they weren't quite... I wanted everything to be fantastic because I felt like the, this, this age we were in where you could do two, two good songs on an album and then jam the rest in the studio, that's not on. That's not going to happen. So that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to be as good as the Beatles and the Stones in my own way, with every song is good, everything is worthwhile. And uh, so, so that's what happened. I met Noel and, and, and uh, Paul, the bass player of Chilly Willie, said, I think you should meet this guy, Dave Robinson. Uh, I think he's going to like what you're doing. And I'd been playing with a few other London people that were connected with Noel and... You know, there was Paul Diceman Bailey, who was also in Chilly Willy. Right. He jammed with me a few times. We'd go to someone's house in London. And then Dave, uh, I was introduced to Dave, and he... And Dave think, was running Hope and Anchor, the yes, studio? Yes, he had the studio up there. So 
I don't know whether I, he had a, I got, I got a tape to him or anything. I'm not was sure. Was that the first time you'd been in the studio? Um, no, there's a weird thing here. Something. There's, there's so many bits of my life there's, there's, that I forget. I had a publishing deal, actually. When oh, I was, really? Yeah, when I first was back in England working in factories, thinking I'm going to write great songs. And, and this guy had a studio in, in uh, Haynes. I think it was out in, out in Haynes somewhere. And they, I signed this publishing deal, which was the usual NAF kind of 50-50. And I had about 40 songs. But there was only a few that were up, up to it. And School Days was one of them. And I think Soul Shoes was there. So there were those. But, um, so, but so I had been in the studio to that right, extent. Yeah. And he even put musicians behind me, you know. But it didn't, nothing was, he wasn't, he didn't know really what to do with this music. Right. Dave Robinson Where's Dave did. Dave right. Yeah, he, he heard it and... And he I, gave it to Charlie Gillett, was that right? Yeah, we got a song played, uh, a, de a demo of me doing Between You and Me. I also did Nothing's Gonna Pull It Apart that was on Howling Wind. But the one I, I remember, Between You and Me got played and that's when Nigel Grange from Phonogram called up and so said... So it's BBC Radio London, as it was. Radio London, yeah. Honky Tonk was the yeah, show, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fantastically quick, isn't it, really? That you record that, it's on the radio. Well, yeah. A, a record company guy. And as Dave radio, says... Signs you immediately. Yeah. I mean, that's astonishing. And Dave Robinson said in the documentary, he said that I knew it would be that easy. And, and there's no reason it should be, because he said what normally takes forever to, to happen. You know, you're supposed to play in bands and get things thrown at you and do the circuit and, you know... And fail. Yeah, because you make didn't comparatively pay your dues in that respect. Yeah, I didn't do any pay dues paying. No, no, I started pay playing them, paying them, uh, sometime four years after my career later began. On. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Later on. Now, okay, I think I've got to work at this. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know. But uh, yeah, it was uh, so that that was, and, and he put the rumor behind me really, who were rehearsing together anyway, um, but they didn't. Have a direction, and Dave, you know, said, "Come on, you got to try, try it with this guy." Right. right. So, that's so it. you saw the, the rumor came behind you, and then you signed to Phonogram pretty quickly. Oh yeah, it was just like that. I mean, before the rumor were behind me, it was a demo, remember? Yeah. And that's yeah. what what Nigel Grange heard, and that demo was so cool that it landed on Howling Wind because me and the rumor tried to play the number. It didn't have the magic of the demo. Sometimes that happens. Di yeah. Totally different musicians played on it. Um, but that, it was just one play, I think, on the Char Charlie Gillette show, as far as I remember. And he called up and Incredible. said, I want to give that guy a deal. And so I, I, I was like, whatever, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> I was you, like, yes! Are you, yeah. then, are you then starting to play quite sort of prestige gigs, are you? What, when what? we were the room of first yeah, gigs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We played um, uh, Nags Head at High Wycombe. That's prestige for you, you know. Right, right. And, and yeah, but you were probably well. headlining, were you? Yes, yeah, yeah. so we were headlining pubs, and then we, you know, very quickly we got onto a tour by Ace. Right. And they were playing theatres and unis, as I remember, because they had the big hit, How Long, you know. They'd, they'd, and uh, so very quickly we were in the rooms that were bigger than the pubs, let's put it that way. And then we were headlining those same rooms pretty quickly, and also the Sin Lizzy opportunity came up. Oh, you toured with them? Yeah, we did like four months. The tours went on for months then, even in England. We were up and down the M1 and all this stuff. So and then we did it in America. We also did... And that uh, work with their audience? 
Well, you know, it was strange. Strangely enough, Slightly it did pretty good yeah. because you know people have that. There's all that rock image, you know, the the crotch rock and all this Phil doing all giving it all that. But you know what? They had Brian Brian Downey as a drummer, and he could swing. You know, they were they were they weren't what most people might have thought they were. In yeah. at least in America, they were thought of as a kind of bit of a banger heavy metal band the critics didn't take them seriously but as me and the rumor did we thought they're good yeah and so and the audiences seem to think this we we went down okay i don't remember any bad stuff going on at all apart from in america because the only place we were really popular at that time was new york and los angeles so all down south we were like get off the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah well you know short haired guys looking yeah. angry playing swing music so, I mean, it was like they thought we were like their dads or something, you know. So, so you always had a lot of confidence on stage, did you? Uh, no, no, I still don't. No, no confidence. You always today. appeared no. to. Yes, I know. You have to. Right. Yes, it was my attitude. I, you know, I own this. And I might have been nervous throughout a whole gig sometimes. Because in those days, you play New York or London, it's like, your life depends on this one, lads. This is it. So you get all nervous and you did a better show in Nag's Head, at the Nag's Head, than you did in Hammersmith Odeon, you know, because you didn't, you were more relaxed. But, um, you know, I've always found it just bizarre, standing on a stage, and the lights are weird, everything's odd, and the sound is, it's just, and there's people, and it's, there's something <laughs> not very, there's something unpleasant about it, you know. Uh, but I, I enjoy it much more now. I've never really seen it from that vantage point, actually. It's quite interesting. Yeah, it's, it's just weird. It's not, it's not right. So I've always found it quite unnatural. But you always kind of attacked it. I did, I, yeah. Well, that, the reason for that is because I thought, I'm going to take these people and shake them. Get you know? them before they get you. I, yes, get yeah. them before I didn't allow them to get me. And as we went on, the rumour got faster and faster. <laughs> we got more and more intense. So they really didn't have a chance. They were helpless. You know, we right. crush them. We crush their spirits. <laughs> <laughs> we traumatise people. Yeah, we, we did. We traumatised <laughs> a lot of people. But uh, we got really good. Really good. And, uh, you know, I was prolif prolific still and throwing out the album. So I think we had a very good run of it. And people say, why did you split? And to me, it was four years as a, for a young man, you know, to, those four years seemed to be 40 years. It seemed a very long time, you know. So it was, I wanted to hear music differently, my music. So and it's four, year, four years with rumours. So it's four years. Four or five, with, yeah. So Howling Wind and Heat Treatment and. Stick to Me. Parkerilla. Parkerilla Sparks, live, Squeezing uh, Out Sparks. Squeezing Out Sparks. That's and and the, the Up Escalator. Right, of course. Yeah. Yes. That was Graham Parker on the rumour record. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Can and you remember yeah. the things that, 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 that people wrote about you in the music papers? Dave and I worked on music papers at the time, the enemy and sounds and stuff. And, and you, you know, you were all over them. You were on the cover all the time. And you know, can well, you remember yeah. anything? Can you quote anything that people said about you? Or there was quite a few. It was we got. Uh, you know, the press were very good to me because they really were. I think there was there was a there was nothing, not much else. You know, I mean, there was Doctor Feelgood and stuff, but I had original songs that was different, and so they did blather on quite a bit um, about us. And it was you, you be, it was it was interesting because coming from, you know, being in the suburbs, it seemed like one minute reading about all these, wishing my name was in there, and suddenly it's all over the place. Uh, it was it was pretty good actually. I thought it was I thought they were pretty pretty good to us at first. How how did the situation work? Because Dave, who was your manager, 
Dave Robbins, yeah. was also round about the same time, started Stiff Records with Jake Rivera, but you weren't on Stiff Records, you were a you know, No, not, not until the Up Escalator, it was just one record right, in, in right. England only. I was right. on Arista, where the money was in America. Right, right. Yeah. So what, did you feel he was distracted or you, did you feel you were getting the proper attention and so forth? Well, from the beginning, when we would be on the road in a transit van with Dave and the band, we're all crammed in with the beers and all that, um, he was talking about making a record label. He, that was his, his dream, so that he could sign all these people in London who couldn't get record deals, Nick Lowe being one of them. I mean, they had record deals. A lot of those bands were United Artists. Yeah, I think yeah. they had a friend friends there. Um, but they didn't sell any records. At, you know, they didn't make any big splash in that area. Um, and so Dave, uh, now he's making some money from me, so it's like, oh, I can start my record label. Thank you, Graham. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, so he starts Stiff Records and uh, all that <laughs> wild, interesting stuff came along. What, what really frustrated him... Funded by you. Yeah, no, <laughs> he wasn't earning any other money, I can tell you that much. Thank you very much. But, yeah, the, the, the thing that frustrated Dave the most was um, the record companies, both Phonogram and the American branch Mercury, especially Mercury. But even Phonogram, he'd say, we want a picture sleeve. You know, what a, and they said, oh, it'll kill the music industry if you have that. Everyone will want one. We want a coloured record. Oh, no, it'll destroy the music industry, Dave. Yeah. He was so frustrated. And he was determined when he has his record company, he was going to put things out, records out in any colour he wanted, no matter how much it costed. How much it cost, because, you know, he just found them all very staid and ordinary and boring, which they were. Because you famously made a record called Mercury Poisoning. Dedicated to your American mm. record company. Yes. Yeah. Well, I have the best kept secret in the West. Yes. I believe the chorus yeah. was. Yeah. Well, Mercury, unfortunately, they they were sort of fine with their catalogue, and we, you know, there was no the punk and new wave didn't really exist in '76. It was in the back of the music papers, and if you were in London, you might see the Sex Pistols, you know, playing somewhere. Uh, to 10 people or something out, out in the suburbs. But in America, it was all Boston journey sticks all through 76, all of 76. Hardly only a few college radios might have got wind of something else happening like Devo or something. But largely, that's what it was. So Mercury, that's all they knew how to deal with. Mm -hmm. They didn't know what we were. We didn't have a moniker. We weren't called New Wave. We weren't punk because it wasn't there then. Right. How it did they react to you putting that record out? Uh, well, it was what, yeah, I was just about to sign to Arista. I was pretty much, I think I was off. So you're on your way. Yeah, I was on my way. And Arista put it out, I think, as a, I don't know what it was, a bootleg or some damn thing we put it out. A grey, it was on industrial grey vinyl with a skull on it or something. And I wrote that song not because I particularly wanted to, because Dave's was so fuming at Mercury, he wanted uh, a, a song, of, an album of hate, hate songs <laughs> about Mercury. And I came up with one. I said, I think I've said it all here. And I think I'll write Squeezing Out Sparks now. OK, then we'll leave this one out the so way. So let's talk about Squeezing Out Sparks, which is 40 years old this year. Produced by the great Jack Nietzsche. Yeah. Phil Spector's right-hand man, arranger, whatever. Right. How was that experience? Uh, well, it was very weird at first. Uh, as Steve Goulding said in the documentary, we found out he was wanted for, for attempted murder. Uh, something to do with rape by instrumentality, which means rape with the barrel of a gun. 
Um, so he was there. He, he, there he was over to produce us, and his it was his his girlfriend Carrie Snodgrass, the actress, who oh, yes. claimed that this had happened. And uh, he was a bit spaced out, really. He'd, he'd had uh, his um, uh, opioid problems, I think, and he was looking for Percodan. We hadn't heard of that. If we'd known that the equivalent was Mandrax, it's the same thing. Maybe we could have got him some Mandrax, I don't know. But it was probably a good thing that we just weren't into that. He, he doesn't kind of sound stuff. ideal, actually. No, he's not, he wasn't <laughs> ideal. He was, he was not Looking ideal at, at all. CV. And <laughs> he didn't really know. He thought uh, that he was coming to produce a punk band. He right. really didn't know. I sent him a cassette with local girls on it. That was about it, really. How come it worked so well? Well, it worked so well because we spent three days with Jack sitting there looking glum, you know, probably expecting to be arrested at any moment, you know. Uh, and the band were playing as if we were playing live. I think we were so pepped up at this time. We'd even, in the studio, we'd be hammering it and everybody would be playing the intensity. And Jack, I, you know, after a couple of days, I said, Jack, we're not getting anything down here. Uh, and so we had a talk, and he just said, well, the drummer plays the cymbals all over the place. That's nice live. It's exciting. And this, just everybody's playing against each other, and I don't think they're paying enough attention to your songs. So I said, well, great. Let's go in tomorrow and pay attention to the songs. You know, he just... Perfect. He, he just... He was a bit sort of... Uh, He's a bit shy, oddly. I, I don't know he? what he was. He was just disappointed. He was very disappointed. And he thought, well, this is punk, I suppose. And then we started to listen to the songs and play them. I'd, I'd have the acoustic guitar, and he'd say, why aren't you playing like that? Look at what Graham's doing here. Do that. And other ideas, like Can't Be Too Strong, which I'd written as a country song. And he said, That's, this is a heavy song. Why are you doing it like that? Why don't you just strum the chords? And I did it like, like this. You mean open? He said, yeah. And then we recorded it like one take. Um, and so that's how it came together. The next thing you know, Discovering Japan is coming through. That was the first one that we've been rehearsing the most. And it was awful. Nobody was getting anywhere with it. Nobody understood if it was good or not. And I thought, I'm sure this is good. I'm sure this is a good song. And then we heard it back through the speakers when we finally had all got to play as one, as opposed to all over the place, when Jack started to come in and do something. And that's, that's what it took. And uh, I listened back and thought, ah, oh, that is something else there. And so everything else went like that, yeah. pretty much. Passion yeah. is an ordinary word. It's like, come on. I mean, these songs are actually okay. I didn't know. I wasn't quite sure. I thought they were a bit weird. Right. <laughs> so, movie... I, I, I note that... Um, I think I note this down now. It's... Um, it's uh, Rolling Stones, according to Rolling Stones, best albums of all time, Graham. You'll be pleased to know that Sweezing Out Sparks is at number 335. It is now, yes. <laughs> it, was, it was at 50-something before. Right. <laughs> it's, no, they've expanded the list over many years. Oh, right. <laughs> years. And unfortunately, it's, it was one under an, an, an Alanis Morissette record. <laughs> Which means the whole list is moot as far as yes. I'm concerned. <laughs> Just trash that list. Yeah. That is, yeah. How can you have an Alanis Morissette record above squeezing out sparks? I think it's mm. fair. It's perfectly yeah. fair. You see, I'm the same as ever. I'm Let, really, let's, no. let's move. I'm livid. Let, moving forward to the 80s, you, 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 leave the, you break up the rumour, you go out on your own. You move to the, 
This is uh, the Hudson Valley. We're looking at a, an ancient oh, an watercolour. Well, Hudson actually, Valley. I was in New York City before that. Right, and okay. then uh, we had a daughter, me and my wife at the time. We had a, a daughter in New York City. She was So we were there. And I'd be visiting this area, which doesn't quite look like that now, <laughs> no, but no, it's no. not, you know, there's some similarities still. There's a lot of land up there, a lot of wild land still, because there's no industry, so, which is great, really. Not much industry, anyway. I hope it stays like that, um, you know. But I, so, yeah, then it was sort of up in the country there with a house. You get 10 acres minimum, and you get a house that would cost you about 10 million bucks, quid here or something. And it's just absolutely fabulous. So I had a, but I still had the place in London. So I was back and forth a lot, and there was a lot of money because I was I kept getting signed to labels, right. foolishly, giving me money, because they thought he's going to make it at any time. They, they were big fans. These people, all of those those guys around big record companies, they loved my music. They wanted to have it on their label. So in those days, you got paid, you got four albums in a deal. And they didn't tend to drop you. I mean, even if the first record was like a disappointment, because in those days, if you didn't sell a million, it was pretty pale, you know? And I got nowhere near that. But they, they kept me on, and every, every record, you get more money. And then when you get into the 80s, the, the, the ethos was, the idea was, the more money you spend, the better the record will be. So unfortunately, I kept spending, all my, <laughs> spending it all on making records that I now know could have taken two weeks. But then that wasn't the game. You had to be in the record plant or the power station in New York. You had to be expensive. You had to have double-scale musicians. You had to, there was a lot of white powder that you had to have as well, of course. I mean, it was just indulgence. It was, it was, and those records are, the first two post-rumor albums, pretty disappointing as a result. I think the songs are all right. I'm not, you know, I think they're, I'm proud of them all, but... It was that 80s thing. It got a bit blurry and it got a bit me. It all about me, me. Everyone was me, me, you know. Well, talking about people who, who were enormous fans, Judd Apatow. Um, yes. The great filmmaker who made uh, Knocked Up. Um, got in touch with you working on a film called This Is 40, starring mm. uh, Paul Rudd. And explain how that happened. And what, what part did he want you to... What did he want you to contribute to that film, as it were? Well, um... I'd, I'd just reformed the rumour, and we were, you know, I was looking for studio time in, in the Hudson Valley, bring them all there to do an album, which happened by kind of pure luck. I'd been playing, doing a lot of records where I'd play all the stringed instruments, and I'd get, have a keyboard player and a, and a good drummer. I'd play the bass and all that, and I, I think I emailed uh, Andrew, the bass player of the rumour, and Steve, and I've worked with both of them on different albums, but not together. So it's all these years later, and I said, how about us do uh, recording my songs as a three-piece, and then I'll add lead guitar or, you know, get a keyboard player or whatever. And Steve made a joke about, what, well, why don't you get Martin, Brinsley, and Bob, and then you'll have a proper band. It was just an email joke. You know, ha-ha, I didn't mean it. And then I did it without thinking. You have to do these things without thinking closely sometimes. Right. When I did it, I thought, shit, this is going to cost me a lot of money. Suddenly it occurred to me, you know. Um, so I, I had that, that was all ready to go. And it was it, within a week or two after that, no kidding, it was that close, my publishing company said, Judd Apatow wants to talk to you. I said, all right, give him my number. He calls me up, I'm up in the, in the Hudson Valley there, up in the sticks. And he says, I've, I might have, 
I might want you to do something in a movie if you're up for it. Would you be up, up for something like that? I was like, yeah, hello, hold me back. What are you talking about? A Judd Apatow movie. And he said, there might be this part for you. I'm, I've, re- I've been trying to think of who could do it. And so I said, give me a time and place, I'll meet you, okay? So I, I, he said, well, I'm going to be in New York City in a few days. So I said, I'm down there. And I drove down and met him at, in a, in a, at his hotel. And, uh, you know, we just he told me about the part, what it was. Basically, somebody signing to a, an indie label in modern day, in the days when records don't sell very well. And this guy, Paul, Paul Rudd, Pete, is putting, hinging everything on signing people like the Haircut 100, yeah. you know, and uh, Frank Black, without the Pixies. And now he wants to sign me, and he thinks, if it doesn't make it on this record, I'm done. You know, I'm in big trouble. And I said, oh, give this part to me. Yes, and I, I can really rip this one. I, I, I know it. I can be extremely... So you've been through that situation lots of times. Well, it was, it's, it's not just, so much with independent labels. Yeah, it's, it's one but, of those but, things you know it. Yeah, I mean, anyway. it's quite interesting. I'm interested in your view on this, you know, because guys from record companies... You know, people always they talk about very derisively about people from record companies, the suits and so forth. Right. And very often these people are really passionate about yes. music and really yeah. care about it they and are. want it to work yeah. and they want to sign Graham Parker because they've always liked Graham Parker. Yep. And then do, do you feel you've sort of let them down occasionally? Uh, they... Oh, I certainly did because, as I said, in, back in my day, in the, you know, with those major labels, a million was a, a sort of normal sale for a popular band and I was selling like 200,000, you know, until squeezing out Sparks, which was a, a bit more, but still it wasn't significant for the amount of money they're putting in because they also do tour support and, you know, promotion up to a point. There was never much of that because Arista, quite frankly, gave me way too much money up front before I'd even made a record. It was, it was kind of like, this is silly, but I'll take it, thank you. Um, so, it, you know, you have to sell a million And you ne- you're never going to earn that back, are you, really? No, no, them? you're in debt forever. Yeah. If you don't sell millions of records, and they've given you so much... Whenever uh, a song is used, the, what I get is the publishing because I wrote the song. Yeah, yeah. So you're, and you know, all that. You don't realize at the time the, the, the 50 grand tour support and the two tour buses, you know, Muggins uh, here. Is, is, your, is, yeah, it's yeah, all absolutely. on my bill in the end. You don't know that. That's so many people's stories. But at it? the time, I didn't give a damn. Yeah. If somebody said, you know, that's all I said, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I was still young, I felt like, have whatever. You, have, you, have you ever had a royalty payment for a record? Oh, yes. Yes, right. yes. I, I, do, I do get a few, but it's largely, uh, it's, it's largely, it's. Um, it's it's publishing for writing the right, song. Right, that's what I mean. But so I think they, some of the the British Universal ones are okay. They, I think they've gone over the because they didn't give us vast amounts of money. Right. So I think there's 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 royalties coming in first from some of those those records and uh, and and of course the indie labels as well because I've done I you know when you find out when you realise you've gone through the eighties and the nineties you can do a record for a fraction of the price and that's what I would do. I'd pay for it myself. Go to an indie label like Bloodshot Records in Chicago, great roots rock label. Uh, Razor and Tie was another one, and say this is how much it cost me. That's what I paid, and they give me that as an advance. Right. And it was you know enough that you could make. I'd make a bit more if I was lucky. You know. So uh, two two remarkable things about your reunion with the rumor. A, you were all living. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Well, it's you know. It's, yeah. 
know, many years. How many years? And B, you were all speaking to each other. Spooky, yeah. Was it something like 30 years or more than that? It was over 30 years. 33 years, I think. Between us being being a band. I can't think of any other examples of bands. I mean, there are bands who are still together, but they've kept going. Don't jinx this. (laughs) No, no. They're good guys. We're all friends. (laughs) But you were all friends. There was no kind of great. You know, no, no some feuds. You, you, you went through that usual thing before the internet came along of, of not being in touch sometimes, you know, for a year or so. But when we were in touch, it was like, what a laugh, you know. And, and when we got back together, it was all the same thing. What's the what, main reason why you, do you think, if there is one, why you, why you all got on so well? Um, it's I, because we didn't, there wasn't enough huge amount of money to argue, to over. argue about. Yes, yeah, so I wrote all the songs, so sorry, go away, it's mine. Yeah. There's nothing to argue about, pal. And, and everyone was like, oh, all right, we'll get on with something else then. Yeah. And everyone did different things. And uh, there, it, it just didn't... We didn't have that sort of battles on stage or screaming at each other about how loud you were tonight. You know, even though we are all going deaf. We weren't... We just didn't bother yelling at each other. It just... To me, it's like, do all your... Pa- do, do your intensity while you're playing. And that's it. And so we didn't have that kind of, like, some bands, you know, they're actually screaming at each other on stage and they walk off in a huff. And it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible for some people to work together once they get to know each other. And we, we didn't really have that. So that's why it was easy for us to get back together and just, like, bask in a little bit of sunlight just once again. Plus, the Joe Avatar movie came, came out, and we timed the release of Three Chords Good to go with that. And it was just astonishing being in America when that came out. It was number three box office, and it was in the cinemas for months. Um, Terrific. So it was, it was, you couldn't have uh, written the script for a better restart. Right. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't have done it, and it was just pure fluke that happened. So it's come full circle. You're, <coughs> you're back in the UK now. You're living in the UK. Uh, yeah, mo- mo- much of the year and uh, about four, at the moment, four months of the year in, in the USA where I do a bit of touring and I've got grown-up kids there and uh, I've, got, I've got this place there in the wilds. It's absolutely stunning and beautiful. I might do a bit longer there next year, but coming back to the, to the UK with the, the rumour, it's obvious we've got to play some UK tour dates and, and it, it just seemed a natural thing. And then from then on, like, I've got to tour coming up, a solo, solo yep. tour coming up, November. Um, so, and me and Brinsley have been doing duo stuff. I mean, we did about three tours of the UK and Europe and three tours of America before it was like, okay, don't, don't let's ruin this. Let's stop now. And everyone was like, yeah, we're fine. So you're touring in November, the yes. UK, on your own? Solo, two guitars, voice, attitude... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're playing the Union Chapel in London on November the 25th. Correct. Yes, lovely venue. Played there before. Absolutely. But, but uh, I think I played with Brinsley as a duo. But uh, yeah, this is just solo solo show. So no regrets. Um, there's always oh millions of regrets, but they're not worth bothering about. You know, it's like you think of some dumb things you did you know, that might have been working against you, you know, but nothing of any... Everybody's got regrets, haven't they? I mean, it just comes with life. It's like, no laughs? Yeah, I had some laughs. Regrets? Yeah, a few of those. I had a few. But nothing like I'd tear my hair out about. 
And if I do find myself thinking, why, why didn't I? It's like, just stop it. You know, it's it's not something that you wanna you wanna live in that kind of area. Right. And I kept creating every time I write some songs and think, this is gonna be a a good album. This is the this is my best. This is it. It's always. Or it's at least it's different than the last one, and I feel very good about it. I mean, Cloud Symbols, still the latest studio album, with Martin Belmont's on it, and uh, I, it's. I'm, I'm having trouble thinking about how am I going to follow it. I liked it that much. It's exactly what I should be doing now. It's. It's. It. It pulls back from the the swing that was in Howling Wind and Lady Doctor and, and White Honey and stuff like that. It pulls from that and brings it up to now, and it's a seamless record. And uh, you know, I'm very pleased with that kind of that kind of result. And also, I've redone "Squeezing Out Sparks" solo because Martin Belmont has been doing a, a di- was doing a book in in last year, 2018, of the chords of "Squeezing Out Sparks," all the chord charts, the, the, all the parts, the guitar parts. And he said, "You know, someone told me it's been 40 years." Next year, 2019, since Squeezing Out Sparks was out. And I was like, 40 years. And I foolishly said, I should do all the songs solo and do an album. And so I was kind of stuck with it then. I didn't <laughs> want to annoy Martin after saying that. So I did, I did this. There it is. And uh, that was kind of interesting. Yeah, just, it was just one of those things. Might as well celebrate it. I mean, I'm, I'm a guy who prefers to be only on the new stuff. That's where I prefer to be. That's where I, I prefer people to be. But I know the facts. The facts are when someone was 20 and they, and they heard that in their high school dorm and it got to them, it really got to them. Because yeah. when you're that age, that's when your period is when you, you, you learn about an artist and you, you dig them. You know, it's so much that it's overwhelming sometimes. So obviously... Might as well celebrate it to a certain extent. So if, if you're one of those people who had that epiphany in your 20s or whatever, he may be coming to your town soon. Ladies and gentlemen, Graham Parker. <laughs> Thank you. Hello. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, guys. That was fun. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.